copy of God's Word, be turning with me to 2 John, the little letter of 2 John, and we've been in a study of this little letter over the last two or three Sundays, and this morning I want us to read verses 4, 5, and 6, 2 John, you'll find it toward the end of the New Testament, and like I've already said, if you have a hard time finding where it's at, go to Revelation and turn two or three pages back to the left and you'll be right there. Only just a brief little book uh, consisting only of 13 verses. And though it's small, it most certainly contains a major message, uh, one that we need, especially as it relates to this issue of holding fast to both truth and love, uh, especially within troubled times such as ours. Uh, recently, Anita and Allie uh, went to the Tanger Center over in Greensboro, and uh, they went to see the stage performance of Les Miserables. And if you're familiar with that story, it's based on a 19th century novel. It was written by Victor Hugo. But the main character in that story is a man by the name of Jean Valjean. And he serves some 19 years in prison simply for stealing a loaf of bread. And he enters the prison as a young man, but he hardens into really a tough convict. Uh, nobody could beat him in a fist fight. Nobody could break his will. And he's finally paroled back out into the world to start over and make a new life, which was virtually impossible in those days because convicts had to carry the, these identity cards and really no innkeeper would ever give a convict room or board and that kind of thing. So for several days, Jean Valjean wanders down village roads until finally there's a kind-hearted bishop who feeds him, offers him a place to stay, gives him a bed to sleep in. Well, that night, Valjean lay still until the bishop drifts off to sleep. And he then rose from bed and he rummages through the cupboard for the family's silver, which he takes for himself, and then he disappears into the night. Well, the next morning, there were three policemen who knocked on the bishop's door with Jean Valjean in their custody. They had caught him in flight, in possession of silver that was not his, and they were ready to put him back in chains for the rest of his life, to which the bishop responds in a way that nobody expects especially Jean Valjean. He cries out to Valjean, there you are, I'm delighted to see you. Had you forgotten that I gave you the silver candlesticks as well? They're worth at least 200 francs. Did you forget to take them? And so Jean Valjean's eyes widen and he's staring at the old bishop with just this expression of unbelief. And the bishop assures the policeman, this man is no thief. The silver was my gift to him. So that when the officers withdrew, he gives those silver candlesticks to his guest who's speechless and trembling. And the bishop says to Valjean, never forget that you've promised me to use the money to make yourself into an honest man. And so the power of that gracious act was something that had a transforming effect on Jean Valjean's life. And he kept those candlesticks really as a memento, and then he dedicated himself from that moment forward to helping people in need. He was willing to sacrifice and roll up his sleeves. 
Now, again, if you're familiar with the story, you know that there's, there's sort of an antagonist who's an inspector by the name of uh, uh, Javert. And Javert is sort of characterized by this relentless pursuit of Valjean because, I mean, here's a guy who's going to follow the letter of the law to the nth degree. And so the point that, that Victor Hugo's trying to make in that story, he sort of sets these two men on a collision course they're destined to have this head-on crash, and it's really a clash between law and grace. Javert knows no law but justice. Valjean is stalked by Javert just mercilessly over two decades. And as Valjean's life is transformed by, by mercy and grace, here you see uh, Javert who is just a legalist in every sense of the term. And the story sort of ends this way, Jean Valjean saves Javert's life, and it's something that so puzzles Javert. His black and white world has absolutely no room for grace whatsoever. He doesn't understand it. And so as the story ends, he takes his own life by plunging into the river. Now, I think that Victor Hugo sort of gets at something that all of us sense at some point or other in our own life because there's this tension at times that we sense when it comes to the issue of law and grace, truth and love. And if we were to be honest, at times we have a very hard time reconciling these two concepts. But the tension is one of our own making in our own fallen humanity because the fact of the matter is you don't have to reconcile friends. And truth and love are not enemies, but they are friends. It isn't one or the other, but it's both and. And that's something that the Apostle John reminds us of in these little letters that bear his name. And it's especially clear here in what he writes in 2 John, verses 4, 5, and 6. And so if you're there with me, let's read what he says and pay close attention to what he says about truth and love and how these two things are kept close together. He says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Now again, keep in mind to whom he's writing. He's already introduced uh, himself at the introduction. He's the elder writing to the elect lady and her children, which I suppose is a very appropriate theme given the fact that this is Mother's Day. But... I believe that this is metaphor. He's writing to the local church and, and the membership that makes up that local assembly of faith. And so it brought John great joy when he heard that these believers were walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. Now look at verse 5. He says, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. And so for just a few moments this morning, I want to speak from this subject, the relationship between truth and love. What's the relationship between truth and love and how is it that, as believers, we keep these in proper balance? John is overjoyed as this elect lady and her children are walking in both truth and love. 
So there's an element in which he is commending the church for their faithfulness to the truth, their beliefs, their worldview, and the fact remains that they, they possess this worldview, it's evident through the way that they behave. Uh, their life is different because of the truth that they had come to believe, which by the way, think about how this is descriptive of the early church uh, in what we read in the book of Acts. It was evident, and you, if you study the book of Acts, it's clear that the followers of Jesus were recognized immediately, and what was it that really gave them away? It wasn't their Instagram account. Uh, it wasn't their political power. They didn't have any of that. Uh, it wasn't their bumper slogans or any celebrities that they had. No. Here's what the Scripture says in Acts chapter 4, verse 33. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. In other words... They were known as being people of both truth and love, truth and grace. And it was something that dumbfounded the world and really left the world scratching its head. And so the only church growth formula that they had was just scriptural truth and selfless, sacrificial love, and they drew thousands to Jesus simply by being like Jesus. Who would have thought? <laughs> And so you consider what the Apostle John says about Jesus in, in his gospel. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. Listen to this. Full of grace and truth. It's not that Jesus was 50% truth and 50% grace or love. No. It's not that he was more one than the other. No, he was perfect grace, perfect truth, 100% truth, 100% grace. And people only had to look at Jesus to see what God is like. And in a similar way, people should be able to look at us and see what Jesus is like. That's really what the Apostle John is saying here in 2 John. Because, folks, the fact of the matter is, for better or worse, people will draw conclusions about Jesus from what they see illustrated in my life and your life. And if we fail to pass the truth test, we fail to faithfully present Jesus to a world in need. But if we fail to pass the grace test, we also fail to faithfully present Christ to a world in need. And so that's why the Apostle John says that there's a relationship which exists between truth and love. It's not one or the other. It's both and. Now, how is it that we maintain the balance between truth and love? Well, I want to show you in, in, in just three quick points. Uh, number one, notice how we must possess the right definitions. We need to possess the right definitions. Again, if you go back to verse 4, John says that he rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. That is, they were walking in the way of God. They were being built up in the faith. They were faithful to the truth of the gospel. Their lives had come under submission to the truth, the revealed truth of God. And so... He then writes about love, and, and the, real, the reason for that is because truth and love go hand in hand. And it's important that our definitions for these two concepts be biblically rather than culturally defined. 
because it's a fact that both the church and the world often use the same vocabulary, especially as it comes to the issue of love, but we use two very different dictionaries. And so in no uncertain terms, John says that what we believe by way of truth, this is of monumental importance. But he also says in these verses that how we behave is of monumental importance because what I believe always impacts the way that I behave if I truly believe it. So John links walking in the truth with the love that we have for one another. And we've already seen that he uses that word truth at least 12 times in 2 John and 3 John, but you'll also notice that he uses this word love approximately six times. He uses it a lot more in 1 John. We spent months going through 1 John last year, and if you remember, he, he, he uses that word love some 45 times in the five chapters which make up the little letter of 1 John. So for the Apostle John, both truth and love, this is a big deal when it comes to biblical Christianity. So we need to understand the right definition of love, the biblical definition of love. The Oxford Dictionary defines love as both a noun and a verb. Uh, As a noun, listen to this, it defines love as an intense feeling of deep affection. As a verb, to love is to feel deep affection for someone or to enjoy something very much. To use another dictionary, Merriam-Webster, it defines love as a feeling of strong or constant affection for a person. To love something is to have a warm attachment to it. So here you have two of the most important dictionaries as far as the English language is concerned, and yet their definition of love sort of leaves love in this arena of emotion and feeling and, and tends to make it something that's so subjective Uh, and that rests with the individual or the self. And yet, when we come to the New Testament, from a biblical point of view, love is a lot more than a feeling of affection because the Bible says that love really is an action that manifests itself selflessly and sacrificially. Now, certainly, feelings are associated with that. God has created us, and and we're emotional beings, and all of that's true, but if love is nothing more than a feeling, then perhaps love can be lost. Maybe it can come and go, kind of like COVID or something like that. But the thing is, that's how a lot of people in our generation think about love. Love is a feeling. And if I don't have particular feelings towards someone, that means that I, I don't love that person, I can't love that person, But my friend, that's the world's way of thinking. That's our culture's understanding of love, and it's a different understanding than the Bible's understanding of love. The Word of God says that love is so much more than that. Uh, Love is an attribute of God, the nature and the character of the one in whose image that you and I have been made. And so here's what John is doing uh, in his epistles. He's sort of redrawing some lines that had begun to fade in the minds of his readers who are beginning to perhaps compromise and capitulate in the fog of relativism, especially you consider these false teachers who were coming along and and were tripping them up as far as the person of Christ was concerned. And so John comes along and he takes a hard stand for truth while at the same time he's not neglecting love 
Because love for God and love for others, this is a major theme in 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And so he's, he's showing us the importance of why we recognize the difference between truth and error, right and wrong. He says that we've always got to maintain this spirit of love. We speak the truth in love according to what Ephesians tells us. Now, he's already said a whole lot about this. In fact, if you just turn back a couple of pages, go to 1 John chapter 4 and look at what he says in verse number 7. In 1 John 4, 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So, so here's the definition for love that you and I need to abide by. Now, here's the understanding of, 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 of love in, in the truest sense, in the biblical sense. You ask anybody if they believe in a God these days, and they'll tell you, yeah, I believe in a God, and, and most people will tell you they believe in a God who's loving. D.A. Carson says that this makes the task of Christian witnessing so very challenging because this widely held belief in the love of God is seen with increasing frequency in some set of ideas other than the Bible. In other words, there's, there's sort of this uh, ignorance when it comes to truth. And, and we want to elevate love at the expense of truth. And John comes along and says you can't do that. You can't minimize the truth in the name of love because that's not true love. At the same time, you can't hold forth the truth out of a sense of just this cold, dead orthodoxy while minimizing love. It's not one or the other. It's both and. And John is clear when he asserts that God is love there in 1 John chapter 4. He doesn't say that God is loving or that God loves, which is true, but he's very specific when he says that God is love. Neither does he say love is God, which that's sort of the cultural understanding today, which sort of takes this divine attribute and wants to basically create an idol out of it, gut it of all biblical truth. No, John is clear. Here's the definition for love that you and I need to abide by as the followers of Jesus. God is love, which means that in him, truth and love are kept in just this perfect balance. And so that's the right definition then, isn't it? He's not referring to love as sort of this squishy sentimentality. It's more than a description of how you feel at a particular moment. It involves emotions, but again, the word that he uses here, the biblical word for love, it's that word agape. And prior to Christianity, that, that word was virtually non-existent throughout the Greek-speaking world. And you know that New Testament Greek, there are a number of words that are used translated as love in English. I kind of think about an English language at times, you know, it's just so very plain and bland. We've got one word for love. I can say I love hot dogs and I love my mama. Now you obviously understand that the love that I have for my mama is a whole lot deeper, stronger than the love that I have for hot dogs. But we got one word to communicate it. Well, Greek has several words. There was the word eros. We get the word erotic from. And, and that sort of has to do with the sensual nature of love, physical love. We would say eros is the word for all take. Uh, then you had the word phileo, 
Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, the love of friendship. We would say this is, this is, this is give and take. But this biblical word agape that's used by John, translated love in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, uh, agape is, is the love of devotion and selfless sacrifice. And it's this word that's used to describe the love of God so that it's all give. If eros is all take, if phileo is give and take, Agape is all give. This is the kind of love that's true of our God. This is the kind of love that John says ought to be true of Christians. Now that's very different than the world's understanding of love, isn't it? Because again, if we go back to those definitions from from the dictionaries, it sort of puts self at the center so that we define love in terms of what I'm receiving, whether it be a feeling or whatever. Listen, agape love is the love of self-sacrifice. It's the love of God demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ who went to the cross having laid down his life for me and for you. That's the love of sacrifice. That's divine love. That's the kind of love that's to be on display in your life as a Christian. It's the kind of love that, men, you're to have for your wife. As a Christian man and a Christian husband, And Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter five when he says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. It's the love of devotion. It's the love of commitment. It's the love of self-sacrifice, surrender, that lays down its life. Doesn't just reside in the area of emotions, but it's, it's deep down in the area of volition. It's a matter of my will manifested through action, selfless devotion. This is the kind of love that you and I are called to as Christian men and women. This is the type of love that's to be descriptive of our relationships within the family of faith. Jesus says that this is the kind of love that will cause the world around us to take notice and say there's something different about those men and women. There's something different with the way that they relate to each other. There's something different that brings them together. It's not a political bond that brings them together. It's not some type of opinion that brings them together. There's something supernatural about the bond that brings them together to which we would say it's the love of God in Christ. It's the gospel. It's the truth and love. It's what's brought us together as the church. So if we're gonna maintain this balance of truth and love, we've got to possess the right definitions. Now, notice the second thing. Not only do we need to possess the right definitions, but John says that we need to pursue the right devotion. And notice what he goes on to say. If you go back to 2 John, on into verse five, he says, and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning that we love one another. So he says that our love for one another, this is the command that we've had from the beginning. And he'll use that phrase again in verse number six. It's not as though I'm writing you a new commandment, but the old commandment that you've had from the beginning. And he uses that word commandment or command, he uses it some four times in verses four, five, and six. And then you'll notice that he uses the word in a singular way uh, compared to the way that he uses it in verse six where he refers to it in, in plural terms, commandments, What he's doing here is that he's zooming in on one overarching command and showing how it's central to the Christian life. 
and it involves loving our brothers and sisters. And so this is what he says when he, when he says, this is not really new, but it's the very same command that you've had from the beginning. I'm not telling you anything that you've not already heard. Again, if you were to go back a couple pages to 1 John, you could see that he essentially says the same thing with more emphasis in 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Look at what he says there. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So he says that he's not writing a new commandment, (laughs) but then he turns right around in verse 8 and says it is a new commandment. You say, John, what are you saying here? Well, again, the Greek language, it's helpful here. There are two words often translated as new. Uh, One particular word, neos, it translates that word, it refers to something as being new in time, uh, something that had not existed up until that particular point. But that's not the word that John uses here. It's not the one that he uses in 2 John. The other word is, is kainos, which refers to something new in quality, as in something that had been around for a long time, but now it has fresh relevance. Now it's seen in its true light. That's how John is using this word new here to refer to this command to love. It's an old command, while at the same time, it's a new command. It's old in the sense that it was given way back in the Old Testament. Some people say, well, you know, the the Old Testament really emphasizes law. The New Testament emphasizes love, to which I would say you see both law and love emphasized in both testaments. And, and, And the Old Testament says that the greatest commandment that God's people could ever obey was to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second's likened to it. Love your neighbor. This is the spirit of the law. Essentially, this is what the entire law of God was about, loving God with all of one's being and loving one's neighbor. Jesus comes along in the New Testament and says the same thing. He says you could take the the law and you could really just sort of distill it down to two overarching commands. The greatest is to love the Lord your God with all that you are and with all that you have. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. So on these two commands, Jesus says, hang all of the law and all of the prophets. So there you have truth and love illustrated in those two commandments. So it's old in the sense that this is God's design for humanity. When God created man in his image way back at the beginning, what was God's design for humanity but to live in a perfect love relationship with him and to live in perfect harmony with their fellow image bearers. Genesis chapter 3 comes along and Adam and Eve sin against God and all of that's been turned on its head. So that now man's nature is such that he doesn't love God. And neither does he really love his neighbor. You want to know who man loves? (laughs) Self. Hence the definitions for love being so defined by self terms, feeling. It turns love in over its head. makes it all about me. 
It's the very thing that sin always does. Sin always leads us to be self-seeking rather than Savior-seeking. Rather than other-centered, it always results in me being self-centered. But that's not the plan of God for humanity. Thank God that Jesus comes along and Jesus perfectly illustrates truth and love and yet here's the love of God on display when he lays down his life for sinners so that now through faith in Jesus and his finished work, his death and resurrection, I can be reconciled to a holy God. My life can be changed. I can be made brand new and be taught what it means to love God and love my neighbor as myself. But left up to myself, I can't do that. I've got to have his enabling grace. And so all of this is, 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 is John's point when he's writing here. You go back to what Jesus himself says, John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, I want you to love each other the same way that I've loved you. Now, now don't just read that and just skip over that and go on to something else, but just chew on that for a second. What does it mean for us to love each other in the family of faith the way that Jesus has loved his disciples, the way that he demonstrates his love for his disciples in the Gospels? Let's just be honest. They weren't all lovable. I mean, here you have Peter. Every time Peter spoke, he had good intentions, but he opened his mouth and inserted his foot. They were often self-seeking, self-serving, arguing among themselves about who was the greatest. One of those disciples turned out to be a traitor. Jesus knew all along who Judas was and what Judas would do, but he didn't treat Judas any differently than he treated Peter or John or any of the others. Thomas was someone who really wrestled with his own faith, and, and, and he basically said, look, I'm not going to believe that he rose from the dead until I can take my finger and put it in the nail prints in his hands and feet. Well, his world was rocked, wasn't it? So here you have all of these, these different personalities uh, and, and different types of men that make up that band of disciples, and yet you see Jesus in John 13 selflessly loving and serving, the, washing their feet, going to the cross. When they abandoned him, he was faithful. He goes to the, folks, that's the measure of love. It's the type of love that he calls us to have for one another. And yet, here's the thing. We, we live in a time where people are so prone to want to turn their back on their local church and walk away from the local church because they may not like something or someone might have looked at them funny or said something that they did. And listen, and I want to ask this question. How is that loving one another the way that Jesus has loved us? Well, we're just so prone to quit on each other. That's a word right there. So if we're going to maintain this balance of truth and love, we, we really need to understand the right definitions. John is calling us to pursue the right devotion. Now notice the third thing. It involves that we practice the right discipleship. Now here's where the rubber meets the road. You get to verse 6 there in 2 John. And he's very specific. He says, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. So he's saying you practice the right 
discipleship. Walking in truth, he mentions that in verse four. Now he's using the expression, walking according to the commandments in verse six. These are two expressions referring to the same thing. Love shows up through obedience. Proof that I truly love Christ, I'm going to be obeying Christ. Truth that I've really come to experience and know the love of God, there's going to be a pattern of obedience in my life. There's going to be an expression of love for others, especially the family of faith that's going to be demonstrated in my life. And John says, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, that we should walk in it. Now, some folks want to cringe when they read that word should because that word should carries a sense of obligation, doesn't it? We live in a time where nobody wants to be obligated to anything. That word should is a concept that infringes upon individual autonomy. And we live in a culture now where some folks underrate, uh, operate under this mindset that, that freedom means there should be no obligation to anyone else in my life or to any standard of authority in my life. But the fact is, freedom always comes with its own obligations. And so John is referring to obligation here and love both in the same sentence. And that's something the world doesn't really understand. Freedom in Christ is not a license to live irresponsibly or live outside the boundaries of God's moral designs for humanity. Because you can't deny truth in the name of love. It's only through freedom in Christ that I'm truly able to obey, and I do so from a brand new heart that delights in God's truth and manifests itself through love for my brother. And so here's the deal. Love is both a delight and an obligation to the one who truly knows God, to the one who's walking in the truth. And this serves as authentic evidence that we've come to know and experience the truth of God for ourselves. And so John says, this is love, that we walk according to the commandments. He's not exempting himself from this obligation. He says, we're all in this together. It sort of echoes what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, where he talks about pastors and various uh, servants in the church whom God gives uh, for the purpose of building up the body and discipling the body. He says, speaking the truth in love. Did you hear that? Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together is held together by every joint. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So there's to be this atmosphere that characterizes the local church where we are committed to both truth and love, where we speak the truth in love, and we demonstrate love in our relationships with one another so that the body of Christ is always just being built up in love. That's what's going to happen today. Whether it's in the worship center, even more specifically in your life groups, when you get together and you're able to pray for one another and you're able to invest relationally in each other's lives, you don't know what our prayer ought to be for the, that the body would just build itself up in love, that truth would be spoken in love, that the body would be ministered to, that there'd be an opportunity for us to serve each other all in the context of truth and love. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a supernatural thing. 
So there's this sense in which John says the church is created by truth. It's a community of faith that exists because of the truth, but it's being built up in love, and our love for one another never undermines our loyalty to the truth, and so that's the balance of truth and love. Genuine love is expressed through obedience. Now, why is this a big deal? Because, folks, listen, there is a version of Christianity today. Let's just call it progressive Christianity, which tries to posture itself as being more loving because it rejects the doctrine which has always been historically true of the faith. Back in 2009, I read where there was a Unitarian Universalist minister who interviewed the atheist Christopher Hitchens. And she was trying to exempt herself from Hitchens' criticisms of Christianity, and here's what she said. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of the atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. And then she asked him this question, do you make a distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? To which Christopher Hitchens replied, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. Do you find it ironic that an avowed atheist could see this simple truth, though he rejects it, while a self-proclaimed progressive Christian minister could not? That's what John's talking about here when he says that there's a balance between truth and love. That's what Paul's referring to in Ephesians 4 when he says we're to speak the truth in love. Because we live in a culture now that says it's not loving for you to just simply speak truth. Now, truth is increasingly seen as being hateful. But if we really love people, we're going to warn people. We're going to speak the truth in love. That's what gospel witness demands, men and women. We've reinterpreted love to mean something entirely different than the biblical writers mean. We, we, we see it as niceness. John says in John chapter 1 that Jesus is full of both grace and truth. By the way, you see that illustrated in John 2. The very first miracle that Jesus performs, he goes to a wedding and turns water into wine. He didn't have to do that. Wasn't his problem that they ran out of wine at the wedding? But in an act of grace, what does he do? Turns water into wine. Very next chapter, he goes into the temple makes a whip of cords and he sees people who are exploiting the worship of God for their own monetary gain and he overturns the tables of the money changers and says listen this, this, my father's house is to be a house of prayer but you've turned it into a den of robbers and he drives them out with a whip I guarantee you won't see that in your precious moments Bible it's not nice Jesus then you know that love demands you be nice. But here's the thing. He's perfect truth. He's perfect love. Perfect truth, perfect love. And it's kept in proper balance. 
May the same be said in my life and your life as well. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Here's the thing. You know what truth without love results in? Really results in this self-righteous Phariseeism that pushes sinners away from Jesus. Becomes a cold, dead orthodoxy that pushes people away from Jesus. Love without truth becomes a self-sufficient narcissism that keeps people from seeing their need for Jesus. Which the thing is, the truth reminds us of our need for Jesus. But the love of God points us to the grace and the mercy and the hope that we have in Jesus. Aren't you grateful that he's the friend of sinners? Ask the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 8 if he's the friend of sinners. Where the Pharisees were ready to stone her to death, Jesus says, he who's without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. One by one, they drop their stones and they leave, and Jesus speaks to the woman, says, where are your accusers? And she says, nowhere, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. That's truth and love, isn't it? Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for the truth of the gospel and the love of God demonstrated in Christ. Lord, as gospel people, Lord, we want to be known by both our unapologetic devotion to truth, but also, Lord, by the love of self-sacrifice to where we're willing to go the distance in our relationships and to love people and to point people to the hope of Jesus because that's the only hope for the world today. And Lord, on this Mother's Day, perhaps there's some, someone in here or even watching online who's in need of just grace. Lord, they've tried to obey the letter of the law and they've come up short every time. Lord, I pray that they understand they need the grace of God in Jesus Christ who kept the law perfectly and yet went to the cross for them. And then, Lord, for the person who perhaps has been playing loose with the truth in their life, in the name of grace, Lord, keep them from that extreme also. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.